the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. My goodness, you're a good-looking group of people today. Your faces look good. I don't know how your bodies are, but your faces look great. Um, are you ready for Christmas, everybody? Good, good. At least in your hearts, not in your shopping. Um, I'm curious. How many of you have been to the glory of Christmas? Let me just see your hands. Oh, good. Lots of you. Fabulous, isn't it? Always a great reminder, a great production, but a great reminder of the whole reason why we do what we do and why we live the way we live. If you haven't seen it, you need, to, you need to grab some tickets and go see it. Well, last week, Pastor Brad opened up a Christmas series. You know, every December we do a series just to kind of get us ready to get our hearts adjusted and positioned well for the Christmas season. And instead of this year just reading the Christmas story over and over again, we thought we would talk about the meaning behind the event at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. So we're doing a series called Let There Be Light because the single most often used metaphor to describe the Christmas season was the metaphor of light. And if you remember last week, Brad kicked us off with a kind of a macro message. And today what I'd like to do is talk about how the light of Christmas impacts our relationships. Now I want to begin with a story, which should not shock you, but I want to begin with a story. Um, just a few weeks ago, I had arguably the most embarrassing moment of 2014 in my life. Thank you very much. Would you all like to hear about it? I'm not sure if I should share it with you, but if we can just keep this between you and me, I'll share it with you, okay? Um, I was with my family in Huntsville, Alabama. We were going to go see a dear friend get married, and we were all excited. So my wife and my 26-year-old daughter and myself uh, drove over and... Um, the night before the wedding, my wife was coordinating the wedding. She's an event planner, so she was off at the rehearsal. My daughter and I were back at the hotel, and it was dinner time. And we were both hungry. So we thought, you know what, we don't have a car, but maybe we can walk to a restaurant. So we went downstairs to the hotel clerk and said, is there a restaurant nearby? He said, absolutely. It's about a mile and a half down the road. Well, we thought, you know what, we can use the exercise. Let's make this an adventure. Famous last words, mind you, but let's make this an adventure. So we walked outside the hotel, and I'm telling you, you know what it's like at 6.30 this time of year. It's dark. It was pitch black outside. My daughter said, Dad, not to worry. I've got a flashlight on my iPhone. I'll guide the way. So I said, great. So she, you know, we're kind of walking like this, you know, down the road. Now, I got to tell you, we're next to a highway. Yeah, this is not the smartest, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, mind you. So we're walking along a freeway, you know, walking along with a flashlight. Well, we get about a half mile down the road, and we realize this Mexican restaurant that was so recommended by the hotel clerk is on the other side of the road, and it's another mile up. So we can see the faint glimmer of those lights, which give us hope, but we got to cross this freeway. Well, my daughter Bethany said, Dad, I've, let's just stay with me, I've got the flashlight. Well, I shifted into male mode. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I don't need a light. I do not need a light. I can do this. I've crossed the street many times in my life, you know? So I, I say, sweetheart, you keep the light. I'm just going to make a run for it. So we wait for a clearing in traffic, which is going 55 miles an hour, mind you, both ways. And I just took off across the road. I'm 55 years old, but my body thinks I'm forever 21. You know, I'm just running across the road. Well, I thought there was pavement all the way across this freeway. No, no, there's not pavement all the way across. There's a median and there's a gully. It's a little valley. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, and you're listening to me right now. Lead you, okay? I'm running at full speed. I don't realize I'm about to go down. I did a face plant right between the two, two rows. I felt like I'd gotten tackled in NCAA football with no pads or helmet on. That's what I felt like. I just went straight down. In fact, I wrecked my rotator cuff. I'm in therapy right now taking meds to stop the inflammation. My knee, my, my hand, my elbow, my face was just bloody. I mean, just red. 
but, but I don't know. You know, in the moment, your adrenaline's rush. You don't know what you're doing. So I'm such a communicator. I yelled out, that's a ravine down there, you know? I'm sure my daughter was thinking, thank you, Captain Obvious. Appreciate that comment. You know, I've got a flashlight, you know? So we get to the other side, and my daughter starts getting paper towels to wipe the blood off of my body. And her deep compassion for her father is eclipsed only by her warped sense of humor. She's giggling as she's wiping the blood off my face. Now, (laughs) that was my most embarrassing moment of 2014. I share that with you because my problem was very, very plain and simple that night. I could see light off in a distance, right? The Mexican restaurant looked promising a mile away. But right in front of me, it was pitch black. Did I mention it was pitch black? At the risk of sounding really cheesy, this is a picture of our lives, isn't it? We've got the, li- the light waiting for us up ahead. Many of you have the promise of heaven. We know way in the sweet by and by, it's going to be good. I'm going to be face to face with my heavenly father. But right here now, it's dark. And we do face plants sometimes, don't we? <laughs> when we're running too fast. I love what Rollo May, the psychologist, once said. Man is the strangest of creatures. He's the only one that runs faster when he has lost his way. That's me. I'm the knucklehead. So in my life, while I have the glimmer of hope and light coming way later, off in a distance, even though I'm a follower of Christ, I've still got dark spots inside of me and around me that I've got to navigate And that's why the number one metaphor the scripture gives us when Christ enters the world is the entrance of light in a dark place. Isn't that interesting? Now, I want us to think deeply about this over the next 30 or 40 minutes. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin now by looking at some scripture. This is going to set the stage for everything I want to say today. If you have your Bibles, grab them, flip them open to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, no worries. We're going to put this right up on the screen, and I want you to follow with me as I read about how the Apostle Paul uses the term light and dark to describe the new state we're supposed to be living in. So, up on the screens, here it is. Let's read. He says, for you were once, look at the word, darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. Live then as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds, look at the word, of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what light does. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated then becomes light. Now, how many times in that single set of verses does he use the metaphor of darkness and light to describe the state we're in? It's almost like he's saying, now I'm assuming you understand that the natural state of things is darkness. And by the way, you know that's true, don't you? We are naturally in a state of darkness, physically, spiritually, you name it, without light, the entrance of light. In fact, at night, when you want to go to bed, you don't say, turn on the dark, sweetheart. You say, turn off the light, right? And you turn on the, you don't turn on darkness or turn off darkness. It's naturally dark unless light invades the dark space. And so it is with our lives. So it is with our relationships. Our marriages have dark spots all over them until there is light that enters. And even though I think it's possible for a non-Christian couple to have a good marriage, they only do so when they practice the principles in the scripture. I'm telling you, I'll argue that to my dying day. There's communication and listening and unconditional love and mutual trust. Hello, those are biblical ideas. And so only as we let light invade do we have any glimmer of hope to find our way without doing a face plant in life. Darkness prevails until light invades. And that is the truth of my life. And I'm guessing you'd admit if you were honest, that's the truth of yours too. So, let's go back to the very beginning. I want you to see how this whole theme prevails in Scripture and leads up to the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and why light is the greatest word we can use to understand what he was, what he was bringing with him when he came. If you go back to the book of Genesis, 
you know that the description of creation goes something like this. In fact, it says in Genesis chapter 1, and darkness prevailed on the face of the deep. Meaning when God created the heavens of the earth in the sequence of seven days, darkness was naturally there, naturally, until God said, let there be light. And suddenly with the entrance of light, what was naturally there was affected. In fact, light influences darkness, doesn't it? If you flip on the light, even if it's not a bright light, it affects the whole room. It doesn't just affect a little compartment of the room. So, oh, we need another light there. No, it affects, even to a small degree, the whole room. And as I mentioned, you don't say turn on the darkness or turn off the darkness. You know it's dark unless the light comes. So darkness prevails. God then changes that by saying, let there be light. And then when he creates Adam and Eve, the first human beings, they live in a state of light externally, physically, and internal, spiritually, for the first two chapters of Genesis. There is mutual trust. There is innocence. In fact, the Bible says Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Didn't dawn on them that they needed clothes. And there was no perversion or sexual weirdness or whatever. It was just, there they were. We're just loving each other. Great communication, great trust, great patience, great listening. Can you imagine relationships like that? Can you imagine a marriage like that, some of you? It would be different than what you have now. Let's just get honest. So that's the state they're living in. Light has entered, and now things are better. Things are exposed, that's what light does, and things are brightened, that's what light does. And then Genesis 3 happens. Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, according to the scripture, partake of the forbidden fruit. The one single item God said, don't do. You can do everything else. Just don't do this one thing. They do this one thing. They eat the fruit that was forbidden. And suddenly darkness enters the world again. In fact, the state of darkness is described this way. Suddenly Adam and Eve are experiencing emotions they've never experienced before. They're practicing behavioral patterns they've never had before. In fact, when God comes down to visit after they've sinned, he says, Adam, where are you? Never had a hard time finding you up until now. Adam said, Lord, I heard your voice in the garden, and I hid, for I was afraid. He had never experienced fear before, and he'd never, hide, he'd never hidden from God before. He'd run to God, not from God, when God came down to visit. Interesting. And then they start playing the victim card and the blame game. Well, the woman you gave me, she made me eat that fruit. I mean, we start doing things that we're doing to this day. Blame, victim, suspicion, don't trust you. Does this not strange, sound strangely familiar to the relationships we have in the 21st century world? It does. It is a picture of what we've experienced as darkness prevails without the entrance of light. In fact, if you trace history, we've gone through long periods. In fact, we went through a period called the Dark Ages. Hello? Where we huddled together in monasteries and didn't want to, didn't want to get out there in that wicked world. Following that, though, the Reformation and the Enlightenment. And that interesting? We use the word Enlightenment. We became aware again. But the point is simply this. Light and dark are a brilliant description of the state of affairs. We live in a dark spot until glimmers of light enter in. And so, 2,000 years ago, Jesus shows up as a baby at first. But when the baby shows up, it is marked, he is marked by a bright star, which we'll talk about in just a minute. The problem is... Very few of us live in a state of awareness of the darkness. We are, dis we are social creatures in need of relationships, but we are becoming worse and worse and worse at doing those relationships. I'm not talking about you personally. I'm saying the state of mankind, we are just not doing relationships well. In fact, let me just get really, really blunt with you. Let's talk for a minute about how light affects relationships, okay? We're going to talk about this light metaphor as it, relate, as it relates to the socialness of our lives, okay? First of all, let's go back to the reality of light and dark. Let's talk about that concept, okay? When you are physically in the dark, there are four realities that happen, okay? Call me Captain Obvious, but look at the screen. I'm going to give you four things that you know happen when it's dark. First of all, in the dark, we can't see well. That's true, isn't it? If you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got to stumble over to the bathroom or you've got to go to the kitchen to get a drink... You're, you're not seeing things real well. Your eyes are not adjusted. Pardon me, may I apply this? I'll just speak for me. There are times when I'm in the dark, I just am not seeing well. I'm not aware of how others are feeling around me. I'm so caught up on my own agenda of not stubbing my toe. I'm not aware, I'm not seeing things. 
I'm not socially aware of how my family's feeling. I'm not even self-aware of how I'm, how I'm coming across to others. I'm not seeing very well. Men, are you listening to me? Number two, in the dark, we slip into a defensive mode. When you're in the dark, you're usually not running. Unlike me, knucklehead on the freeway, you're usually not running in the dark. You're kind of in defensive mode. In fact, you're even thinking, I just, just want, to be, want to be careful here. And outside of the nightlight or that little crack in the door where light comes through, you, you can't see a thing. So you're, you're, you're playing defense, not offense. Does this not sound familiar? Most of us, in most of our relationships, we enter those relationships with just a twinge at least of distrust. Many marriages start with a prenup. Now, if you did that, I don't mean to offend you. I'm just saying, what does that say? That is saying, till death do we part, but just in case, just in case it's not death till we part, I want to make sure I keep what I got. It's, it's, folks, let's just get honest here. It's, we're playing defense. Number three, in the dark, we think self-preservation from hurt because I don't want to stub my toe in the middle of the night. I'm really, I'm really consumed with keeping from being hurt. Hello. This is how we are in relationships. I'm not sure if I should talk, even talk to that stranger. I'm not sure if I should even answer the door. I'm not sure if I should give any of that. Who, who knows where that, chair, where that money actually goes? We are in self-preservation mode, I think, more than any time in human history. I could be wrong, but I'm telling you, it seems to me like right now, most of us are in, I just, wanna, I just don't want to get hurt. I've been hurt too many times. I'm not even going to get married again. I've been hurt too many times. And then finally, the obvious one, in the dark, we tend to wander. We are most prone to wander and to not walk straight to the goal when it's dark and we're just not, not sure where it is. And I believe there's many people today wandering in relationships. Let me give you the numbers. Social scientists, men and women who study human behavior, and psychologists tell us we're living in a day that they describe as a day of social corrosion. That paints a picture, doesn't it? Social corrosion. Implied, we are social creatures in desperate need of each other, but we are not doing the relationship thing very well. We're hearing a term now, if you're reading at all about human relationships, we're hearing a term more and more now called digital breakups. Have you heard this term? You know what a digital breakup is, don't you? Well, that's a relationship that very often starts online and is sustained online, either through texting or a dating site or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. And sooner or later, one of the parties just doesn't reply. I talked recently to a college student and she goes, I think we broke up. What do you mean you think you broke up? Well, we didn't really define the relationship. We, he just stopped texting me. Does this sound familiar? We're slipping into an undefined digital time where we're not even sure and so we just don't reply we don't call back we don't text back by college age young adults spend eight hours a day on a screen that's a full-time job eight hours a day and while screens are not bad technology is not going away i'm not saying it's evil you just don't develop emotional intelligence on a screen i'm sorry you just don't and in today's world, many children are growing up with two working parents. Both parents have to work just to make ends meet. So they're growing up with a one-eyed babysitter, a television, a tablet, or a computer. And God knows whatever they're getting from there is probably not aligning with the values you'd like to teach your children. But alas, that's just reality. So on that screen, they're, they're spending time gaining whatever they're gaining. It's a little bit of a crapshoot. In the 1970s, two-thirds of Americans... That is, two out of three Americans belong to a group, club, organization, or church. Two out of three. We're social creatures. By the 1990s, it was one out of three. And the number continues to drop as we move through the second decade of the 21st century. We just want to belong. In fact, most of us, you belong to something outside of Northern. It's probably virtual. You, you do it online. You bank online. By 2003, just a little over 10 years ago, single-person households was the number one living condition in America. More people lived alone than together with somebody. Relationships are just too messy. I don't have time for that. I don't have any emotional energy left. I just want to go home and be alone. And by 2014, just this year, the report came out. Did you read it? That, most, that Americans, the average American, eats most of their meals 
alone. We scarf down breakfast to get out the door. At lunchtime, we eat a sandwich, but they're punching them with a smartphone. Oh, you know what you Does this sound familiar? It's just less emotionally expensive. Thank you very much. So, psychologists in Germany decided to do an experiment to see how this social corrosion was impacting people in Germany. They staged an accident on the road. They had a stuntman on a motorcycle, and he purposely slipped and slid. The bike went down. He slid across the pavement, and the bike and he lay on the ground. Lots of pedestrians going by, lots of people driving by. Do you know how long it took for someone to stop to make sure he was okay? 20 minutes. Hundreds of people, not dozens, hundreds of people going by. Finally, someone rolled down their window and said, are you okay? No, ma'am, I'm not. I'm laying here. Now, all I'm simply saying is it's a commentary. Now, here's what's really interesting about Germany. Do you know that in Germany, when you get a driver's license, you get emergency training? Every one of those people that had driver's license actually had some level of training to help that poor man. But doggone it, I'm just busy. Or I don't want to get involved. It'll take up all kinds of time. And who knows, that guy might be a burglar on the ground. Am I reading your mail? I'm reading my mail. So we've moved to a state of this corrosive social thing. We, we know we need people, but it's a little safer to kind of just text them rather than really get face-to-face. It's just, it is expensive, no doubt about it. It's taxing to read body language and actually listen. So if I'm right about this, even a hint of this, what did Jesus want to do when he came to earth? Well, certainly he wanted to Give us a way to heaven. Certainly he planned to go to the cross. I understand all that. But I believe Jesus came to renovate relationships. In fact, isn't it interesting? When he kept getting pressed by the religious leaders about what changes he was trying to implement, it had nothing to do with a new religious system. It was not about memorizing creeds or doctrines or even Bible verses. Although, please do that. When someone asked him one day, what's the greatest commandment? As if commandments were were, were made up religious ritual. Jesus said, I'll tell you what the greatest commandment is. Actually, I'm going to give you two. Love God with all your heart. And then love your neighbor like you love yourself. That's it. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. That you've got this love thing down. That they notice a distinct difference between the way you love people and the way they love people. That was it. It was not an adjustment. It was not a mental cerebral exercise. It was not mental gymnastics. It was, it was the way we were going to do relationships, vertically with God and then horizontally with people. But somehow it's easier just to make this Christian faith a, a cerebral thing, a cognitive thing. Let me just memorize some verses and let me just hold on to a nice little Hallmark card or something. I don't know. And all it does is affect here. It doesn't convert here. So Jesus shows up, and it's light. Think about it. Did you ever stop to notice that maybe God was on purpose sending him into a manger in Bethlehem at nighttime? Did you ever think about that? The shepherds were out in the field, and they saw this heavenly host saying glory to God in the highest. Remember that? You know why they could see him? There was a light in the sky, a really, 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 really bright star that was brighter than all the others that lit up the sky and was illuminating the angels who were declaring this message. And then they followed that star over the stable in Bethlehem. And it wasn't just the shepherds. Remember the magi coming from the east. somewhere over, I don't even know if this is east over here. But they're coming from Persia. They're coming over. And do you remember they were following a star? It was a light in the dark sky. There's a picture for us. And by the way, I think it was intentional that those two groups were singled out. Shepherds were among the lowliest of vocations. Magi were the highest of vocations. Magi were consultants to kings and queens. You couldn't get any higher than that. So God says, I'm going to give you a picture. The lowest on the social status and the highest on the social status. I'm bringing you together. And it's all level ground at the manger and the cross. I'm just saying, I'm not saying. I think it's so cool that God says, what I really see the need in you beings that I created was this great need for socialness and this horrible skill set you have on socialness. I was just in Singapore last week and I flipped on the the news over there. You know what the top three stories stories were? Demonstrations in Ferguson and beyond. 
Both sides probably need a little more empathy. Would you not agree? And then there were demonstrations in Hong Kong and there were demonstrations in Moscow over health care. People feeling like you don't understand me. All I'm saying is you're right. We, we, we don't do this very well. We is in both sides. I'm saying both sides. We are so caught up in our agenda we don't see anybody else's agenda. But I'm telling you I really believe that the number one affect or affect that Jesus the light should have is it brightens your relationships. I don't know if I ever told you this but years and years and years ago um, I have a young nephew named Ryan and when Ryan was like five years old he was over at some friend's house playing with other five-year-old kids and I swung over to pick him up and just spend some time with my nephew. Well, I went to the back bedroom and lo and behold, there was Ryan playing with friends and Ryan was being, that particular day, an absolute brat. I know that's hard for you to believe that I have a family member that would be a brat, but there he was holding onto his toys, yelling and screaming that this was his and he had it first and, and so forth. Well, the little boy he's playing next to is looking up at me saying, can you help me here? You know, I mean, can, can you give me some help? You're related to this guy, aren't you? You know, and I just stood there a minute hoping that Ryan would see me and maybe correct his behavior. But lo and behold, my presence did not matter. He kept yelling and mean-spirited, angry, and I had this first and selfish. And finally, finally, this little kid that Ryan's playing with walked over to me, a little five-year-old boy, motioned me down so I could hear him, and he whispered in my ear, is he saved? <laughs> <laughs> As if to imply, I recognize if he knows Jesus, he should be doing relationships better than he's doing relationships. <laughs> Come on, let's just get honest. I wonder sometimes if people saw me behaving, they would ask, is he even saved? He's awfully busy, I know, but is he saved? I know he's getting, making money and all that stuff, but does, does, does he love people? It's interesting that God Almighty would reduce it down to this simple thing of, would you just love people well? And the application, I'm sorry, at Christmas time is, many of you are going to be with people you haven't seen in a year. And it's on purpose. <laughs> right? Oh, that Uncle Harry and Aunt Barbara, they're just weird. Cuckoo, cuckoo, you know? Okay, sorry if you're named Harry or Barbara in the room, but it's just... It's just a time where you just say, we got to endure this for just a day, and then we'll get back to normal. Well, let me ask you something. Wouldn't you think that maybe Uncle Hair and Aunt Barbara might be a God-given pop quiz on your faith? Not about the verses you memorize, but about the verses you're practicing. Hello. About loving him, and because you love him, you love what he loves, and he happens to love Harry and Barbara. And that weird nephew and that, that weird fiancé of your niece or whatever, you're, ju you're, just, you're just saying, thanks, Lord, for the pop quiz. I will be light for these people. That's what Ephesians 5 said we're supposed to do. Walk as children of the light. Be uniquely different. In fact, light up the dark room. In a room full of dysfunctional, broken people, you be a light bulb. And it doesn't draw attention to yourself. It's kind of like these... Absolutely. Can I say something? I just happened to notice something. I have little footlights here on the stage. It kind of kind of illuminates me, doesn't it? Don't you think? Maybe, maybe your curse, not your blessing, but it kind of illuminates me. Do you know what? These lights here are not designed to draw attention to them. You don't sit here and look at the lights, but you know they light up what's happening on the stage precisely. Your light is to illuminate his action. He's the star, and you are illuminating what he's doing on the stage of, of, of planet earth. But we're lights. We turn on the light. We don't turn on the darkness. It's already there. So if I'm right about this, let me give you a picture of what I'm talking about. When I was a pastor in San Diego, California years ago, back in the 90s, I, was, um, I led our out, did a number of things, but I led our out, outreach ministry, meaning we were training people to go out and just love on people in the city. We gave away food and blankets and just loved on them. And one particular Saturday, I was preparing some people to go out and share Jesus with people around the community. So we went to apartment complexes, neighborhoods, college campuses. We even went to the streets of downtown San Diego. Well, this particular Saturday, Eric came out to be trained and to go out and, and share with others. Eric could have been voted the least likely to come out to an outreach event. 
He was very, very, very quiet. In fact, he usually wouldn't talk unless you talked to him first. Extremely shy, extremely introverted. Not, not really, you know, not, he wasn't the life of the party, okay? But Eric came out because he said, I want to learn, I want to learn to, to share Christ. I want to do evangelism well. So I did the training and we all went out and we were downtown San Diego this particular Saturday. I was on one side of a busy street and there was a break in the action. There was nobody around. And so it gave me time to look across the street only to see in that moment, Eric approaching a gentleman on the street, a stranger. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, Eric had no idea that he was approaching a militant atheist. Okay. Have you all met militant atheists before? They're evangelical about their atheism. Okay. So Eric just very politely and very gently, I mean, that's the only thing he knows to do, very gently uh, talks to this man. He initiates the conversation. That's little star number one. And he offers him a small booklet that we were passing out that simply talked about how to build a relationship with your heavenly father. Well, this man obviously entered this little encounter angry, bitter at people like Eric. And he grabbed that little booklet out of Eric's hand, jerked it out violently, and just started yelling at him, cuss words. You blankety blank religious bigots, get the blank blank out of my city, you blank blank idiots, blah, 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 blah. And he just, he's serenading him with cuss words as he's ripping up the booklet and just throws it to the ground. When he's finally done with his set of four letter words, he accidentally, I'm sure, catches eyes with Eric who is just standing there. He's not saying a word. Now we're back to the normal Eric. He's not saying a word. But Eric is just standing there and the man can see on his face deep grief and sadness. Not that he didn't know what to say, but just at this man's reaction. Because what's dawned on Eric is, why would you not want to know this Jesus who loves you so much? Why would you not want to know him? And tears, big, big teddy bear tears, have just started rolling down the cheeks of Eric. Well, now this atheist doesn't know what to say. I mean, you know, what's protocol? There's a man crying on the sidewalk. What do you do, you know? So the only thing that the man knows to do is he'd stop talking. He, he figured uh, the only thing he knew to do was to pick up the litter he has just made on the sidewalk. So he, he kind of reaches down, picks up the litter, stuffs it in his pocket, and he walks away as fast as he can to get away from this moment. I ran across the street, made sure Eric was okay, and, and he was fine. But, but that would have been the end of the story. Except that Eric got a phone call the next week. Hello? Hi, is this Eric? Yes, who is this? Well, well I, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 the, I'm the man that, that you gave a booklet to. Well, I gave a few away. It narrows it down. Keep going. And then the man said, well, I, I'm the one that ripped it up. Oh, yes, I, I do remember. And then this man proceeded to say, well, I just thought you'd want to know that I got home and I pulled out the scotch tape and I taped that booklet back together, every page. Eric said, wow. He said, well, well, I'm not done. He said, the reason I did it is because I noticed on the back of the booklet you put your phone number and that's how I got your number. When I taped it back together, I could see your phone number. I thought you'd want to know that I read through that little booklet cover to cover two times. And I also thought you'd want to know that I prayed that little prayer at the end of the book and I invited Christ to take over my life. Eric was so dumbfounded, he said, why? (laughs) He wasn't connecting the dots. Militant atheist invited Christ into my life, you know. But I'm so glad Eric asked why, because here's what the man said. He stumbled through his words, but here's what he said. I'll tell you why. He said, I see you religious bigots. That's what he called them. I see you religious bigots come down here all the time, pawning your little message off on the rest of us. He said, I think you're the first person I ever met that actually cared whether I got it or not. And when I looked up at you, and I saw you not arguing with me, but just just standing there with tears in your eyes, I thought maybe there's something to this. And as you all know, that's when the Holy Spirit can do his work that only he can do. And it doesn't require an argument. It's a transformation from the inside out. Now, can I ask you a question, folks? 
What was Eric's secret to effective ministry that day? Was it deep theology? No. Was it a really articulate presentation? He didn't have one. Better breath mints. <laughs> you know what it was? Eric loved people. Not really good at showing it even, but he had enough. And I think God must have smiled on that day. This poor guy that couldn't really talk really well. In fact, he cried better than he talked. And he thought, bingo, that's all I need you to do. Because see, I do most all the work. But if you'll just be in a posture that I can use you, don't even have to talk good. By the way, isn't that liberating? You have to talk good. You have to be really smart. You don't have to have high IQ. You don't have to have a lot of talents. Thank you, God. I qualify. In fact, I do you know, face plants on freeways. That's what I do really well. But God says, good, I can use you. If you love people, that's, that's all I need. And that's what my light was supposed to do. Help you do relationships better with your spouse, with your children who are grown now perhaps, with your uncles and aunts and your strangers at Walmart, colleagues at work. I want to help you be a light to them. Now, it's interesting Social scientists and psychologists call what I'm talking about. They don't know how to talk about love and Jesus and unconditional. So they call it social intelligence. This is a relatively new term on the horizon. It's a part of EQ, but social intelligence, quickly, simply defined, is simply this. Social intelligence is being smart not only about relationships, but in them. See, we can all step back in our armchair and say, oh yeah, he's envious. She's just insecure. She's just... No, no, no. You can all do that. That's not that big of a deal. If you got three digits in your IQ, you can do that. God says, in the middle of the interaction, I want you socially intelligent. Which means, by the way, you have high self-awareness. You're aware of how you come across to others. You have high self-management. You can manage your emotions and be and do what needs to be done, even when you don't feel like it. You have high social awareness. You're aware of how the people and the relationships around you are connected or disconnected. And you have high relationship management. You can manage the primary relationships in your circle of relationships. Can I give you a snapshot of how this looks? A number of years ago, toward the beginning of our war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were in the midst of some cleanup work. And the United States decided that we would be sending over help, resources, blankets, food, clothes to the refugees of the war that had been victims of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And so boxes, shipments went over to Iraq in a to a village outside of Baghdad and they showed up and Lieutenant Christopher Hughes, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes was in charge of distributing these boxes. Well, he very wisely decided that perhaps the best distribution center for these goods would be the local Muslim mosque. That's where people gathered there. So even though he was probably a Christian man, he said, you know what? This is probably the best. This is the place they're going to feel safe to go and let's just let them have the credit. So our, his company of soldiers, his troop, marched through the streets with these boxes to the mosque. Well, when the locals there saw us marching toward the mosque, they assumed we're going to bomb it. I mean, after all, that's what people do when they have guns and you know, fatigues on, they're, they're bombing. And so by the time our troops got near to the mosque, there were civilians, all these Iraqi people with rocks and sticks and anything else sharp they could gather as weapons. They were out there waving their arms and just yelling and screaming in, in Darcy, uh, what, you know, to get out of our city. Well, Lieutenant Christopher Hughes had an altercation on his hands. And I don't think he pulled out a manual what do I do in this situation here? What do I do? I don't think that's what he did. Here's, here's what he did. This is so brilliant. This is a man with high social intelligence. He told his troops to stop right where they were. They stood at attention. He then instructed them to take a knee. They went down on one knee. He said to drop their guns. So now they're really vulnerable. They're on a knee and there's no weapon. He said, now look up at their faces. These faces, you know, the people with rocks, look in their faces. And when you look into their eyes... Smile. It was a magic wand. When those people saw our troops smiling, one by one they just dropped their rocks. Does this sound biblical? They dropped their rocks and their sticks, and suddenly the altercation turned into an interaction. 
And one of our troops knew the local language. He explained that they were there as helpers, not harmers, as friends, not foes. And the interaction was made. I say, thank God for a leader with high social intelligence. Now, I'm just saying, you may need that same astuteness this holiday. You think? I know I will. I'm not telling you who I'm visiting, but I will need this. Okay? And I'm saying, why not make Christmas a pop quiz that you can take with you throughout the rest of the year? Because the reason he showed up, outside of redeeming you by his work on the cross, was to make our relationships better. So can I give you very, very, very quickly some practical steps? If you're going to be light in a dark place, you're going to influence, right? I mean, light influences darkness. Can you give me that? When light goes on, it affects a room and everybody and everything in that room. So if light influences darkness, I would like to take simply the word influence and spell it out for you because I think it reminds us of specific steps we can take to be light in the lives of others. If you're taking notes or at least making mental notes, I want you to look at this word influence. I just wrote it vertically and I'm going to give you now a number of statements that I believe this word will remind us of as we become light to the people around us. The letter I reminds me if I'm going to be light, I have to make an investment in others. That means I'm not just in an exchange. I'm not just waiting for them to start the conversation. I'm deliberately making deposits in that person's life. It may be an encouraging word. It might be recommending a book. It might be just encouraging them. But I am, making, I am intentionally making investments in their life. I'm there to add value, not extract value. Hello? The letter N reminds me, if I'm going to be light, I'm natural with others. The people that I know that are great lies to others, they're so genuine. They're, they don't have any pretense. They're not trying to put up a front and saying, look at me, I'm called St. Timothy. They're not doing that. They're people that share their warts and wrinkles and their flaws Because they know while people may be impressed with your successes and victories, they identify with your weaknesses and flaws. Am I not right about that? The letter F reminds me, they have faith in others. The people that I know that are bright lights, they are people that walk around and they at least have a hint of of belief in the people they're uh, they're with. Now I know for some of you that's very hard for you. You go, I don't know if I believe in the people that are around me right now. Well, let me tell you something. Then practice the 101% principle. Find the 1% you can affirm and give it 100% of your attention. That's what you have to do. But you've got to have a, a, a sense or a hint of optimism and belief in the people that you're with. The letter L reminds me, the people that are lights, listen to others. I actually think half of what it means to be a light is actually you taking the time to shut your mouth and actively listen. I'm preaching to myself here. You know what? We Christ followers would earn our right to talk if we'd listen better. I think 50% of being a light is listening. The letter U reminds me the brightest lights understand others. I think there's a deep understanding of human nature. There's an understanding of the needs that you read on their face. They're feeling insecure right now. I need to say something to make them feel safe. They're not feeling they should take a risk. I want to put them at ease by sharing some bonehead thing I did so they'll identify more with it. But you're, you're so keenly understanding of what pushes their buttons and then you don't push it. Some of you need to write that down. Okay. The letter E There's empathy for others. I tell you what, when I think of the people in my mind that are brilliant lights for others, my mother would be one of them. She passed away a few years ago. She was the most empathetic person I think I've ever met. She's totally felt the pain that others feel. And I cry because I'm thinking, she was such a Jesus person. She was so, people wanted to be around her because they knew here's a person that regardless of what I'm feeling, she feels it with me, even though she's never experienced it personally herself. She was a light. The letter E, excuse me, the letter N, I think the brightest lights aren't afraid in the right moments to navigate for others, to offer perhaps a word of direction or wisdom. And it's not like you're turning into a lecturer, you're just saying at the right time, you know, you might want to consider this. And you don't tell them what to do, but you tell them how to think maybe, how to approach this problem that they're facing. But those are bright lights, those are lighting ways when you navigate. The letter C, this is an easy one. There's concern for others. I believe the brightest lights are able to communicate non-verbally as well as verbally. I actually care about you deeply. And then the last letter E. Um, I believe the brightest lights are a source of encouragement to others. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, I don't even think you can be a light unless you learn the art of encouraging. You speak words that encourage and affirm. 
Now, I know those are simple, but can you imagine what Christmas would look like if we did those things to people around us? Oh my gosh. I get emotional just thinking about just the people in this room if we just did this to all the places we're planning on being. It would be a light place. It would be not a dark place. It would be a light place. The only problem is they'll probably want to see you in January and February. (laughs) Just kidding. So here's my last word to you. If we're going to do this well, we've got to come out of hiding. Remember Adam? As soon as darkness prevailed, he hid. He was afraid. He was in survival mode. Got to play defense, not offense. I'm a victim. I got to blame Eve. Would you be willing, in order to be a light, to come out of hiding? Whatever you've done for self-preservation in your relationships, would you do that? 20 years ago, I wrote a book called The Greatest Mentors in the Bible, and I picked, I picked 32 relationships that were, that were like this for other people. And I closed the book with a quote from Robert Fulgham. I don't know if you've ever read anything from Robert, Ful- Robert Fulgham, but um, he's the one that wrote the book, All I Ever Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. It's a great book, actually. But um, in this book, he reminisces, or in, yeah, in, in his quote, he reminisces about growing up as a child and playing those big neighborhood games of hide and seek. Remember playing hide and seek as a kid? It's great. In fact, if you had a bunch of kids, it was really cool in the neighborhood. Well, listen to what he writes, because I think maybe there's an application for you and me today as adults. He says, did you ever have a kid in your neighborhood who always hid so good nobody could find him? We did. After a while, we would give up on him and go off, leaving him to rot wherever he was. (laughs) Sooner or later, he would show up all mad because we didn't keep looking for him. And we would be mad back because he wasn't playing the game the way it was supposed to be played. There was hiding and then there's finding, we'd say. And he'd say it was hide and seek, not hide and give up. We'd yell about who made the rules and who cared about who and how we wouldn't play with him anymore if he didn't get it right. Hide and seek and yell, you could call our game. No matter what, though, next time he would hide too good again. He's probably still hidden somewhere for all I know. <laughs> As I write this, The neighborhood game goes on and there is a kid under a pile of leaves in the yard just under my window. He's been there for a long time now and everybody else is found and they're about to give up on him over at the base. I considered going out to the base and telling him where he was hiding and I thought about setting the leaves on fire to drive him out. (laughs) Finally, I just yelled, get found kid, out my window. And probably I scared him so bad he wet his pants and started crying and ran home to tell his mother. It's real real hard to know how to be helpful sometimes. He goes on. A man I know found out last year he had terminal cancer. He was a doctor and he knew about dying. And he didn't want to make his family and friends suffer through it with him. So he kept his secret and died. Everyone said how brave he was to bear his suffering in silence and not tell everybody and so on and so forth. But privately, his family and friends said how angry they were that he didn't need them, that he didn't trust their strength. And it hurt that he didn't say goodbye. He hid too well. Getting found would have kept him in the game. Hide and seek, grown-up style. Wanting to hide needing to be sought, confused about being found. I don't want anybody to know. What will people think? I don't want to bother anybody. Better than hide and seek, I like the game called sardines. In sardines, the person who is it goes and hides and everybody goes looking for him. And when you find him, you get in there with him and hide there with him. And pretty soon everybody's hiding together, all stacked in a small place like puppies in a pile. And pretty soon somebody giggles and somebody laughs and everybody gets found. Medieval theologians even describe God in hide-and-seek terms. But me, I think God is a sardine player. And he will be found in the same way. Everybody gets found in sardines. By the sound of laughter of those heaped together In the end. 
Ollie, ollie, oxen free. The kids out in the street are now hollering the cry that says, come on in wherever you are. It's a new game. And so say I. To all of you who've hid too good, get found, kid. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm asking just real quick now that you would help us, help us in this room to come out of hiding and to recognize that being light and receiving light means we expose and we brighten the lives of others. It means we're coming out of hiding, we're truthful, we listen, we love, and that's the pop quiz. Forgive us, Lord, for being content in darkness, for putting up with dark spots in our life. Forgive us for being in survival mode, playing defense. Help us now, God, especially in this season, to be lights, just as you were light. And now real quick, one more thing. With your heads bowed, every weekend we have people that come to Northridge that would say, you know, I've been in church a bunch of times, but I don't think I've ever personally taken a faith step. I've never stepped over the line of faith and invited Christ to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. If that's you, seated right where you are, I'd love to lead you in a prayer. And if this expresses the desire of your heart, I want you just to follow my lead, but I want you thought by thought just to invite him to come in and be the light of your life, to be your savior. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, I do want to experience your light. I confess I have had days of darkness. So right now, Jesus, I thank you for coming to earth, dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. And now, Lord, I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. And now, God, build me into a light that you can use to influence others. In Jesus' name I pray. And God's people said, Amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, may I be the first to say, congratulations, smartest decision you ever make. Um, One more thing. On your program that you got on the way in, there's a little flap on the inside that you can tear off. If you would, if you just prayed that prayer with me, if you would just fill that out real quick, we'd love to send some things to you to help you get started. And if you'll check that box at the bottom, orange ribbon that just says today, I prayed to receive Christ. And then on your way out, if you just drop it in one of the boxes on the way out, we'd love to just follow up and help you get started. I love you all. Merry Christmas. I'll see you in a couple of weeks.